Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On the Verge. On the Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex Iron from Callaway defined a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry-leading distance in the new Apex irons, and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. This kind of power, distance, and control is not supposed to feel this great. Apex is in a class by itself. New tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set, which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player's shape. The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability, and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, once you experience an Apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Welcome to On The Verge, the second podcast, Series 2. And today's guest is Ryan Donnelly. Uh, He's the select division manager at Athens Distributing Company. He deals with all the fine wines, but what has brought me to have him on my show is he got started in the wine industry uh, as the winemaker and all things wine at Miracle One. Their Pinot was fantastic. And Bluebird, among others, he's done a lot of work at multiple wineries out in Sonoma and Napa Valley. Welcome to the show, Ryan Donnelly. Ryan, how are you today, buddy? Doing well. Well, this is a... uh, this is an exciting time for me because, like I, I tell people all the time, I know three things. I know rock and roll, I know wine, and I know golf. So you are my wine man. You are the man behind so many cool things. And I'll never forget, after I coached you all the way through high school and into college, you went out west and you went in search of what it is that you're going to do. And you found yourself into into the winemaking process and wine. And one of the things I found so fascinating is after not talking with you for a long time, you show up, I can't remember where I saw you. You're like, yeah, I got, I got this, I made this new Pinot. It's called Miracle One. I'm like, you make wine? You're like, yeah. I'm like, so I go, I go right out to the store <laughs> yeah. and buy six bottles of Miracle One. And I'm like, yes, I love Pinot too. So tell me about, this this road because obviously you were you were a good high school player went to college and played some college golf and then where did golf this weird game called golf where the process has to become so important to get the result and it actually is the exact same thing in the wine industry which is the you have to kind of fall in love with the process of making a great wine to get a great wine you can't just want a great wine talk to us about how you went from golf to wine yeah i guess that's um you know golf grew up you know with you loving golf and really enjoying 
the game and then uh, grew up also in the wine industry with my parents or, or my dad uh, doing wine and spirits distributing business. Mm-hmm. And so always was kind of a little bit interested in wine. And in college, really delved in after, you know, I turned 21 and mm-hmm. uh, started um, enjoying, you know, all types of different wines. And then I guess after after college, really wanted to go see what it was about, like making wine. You know, uh, I experienced, uh, you know, for myself drinking it, but never been to a vineyard, anything like that. And uh, was fortunate enough to go to Australia and work at Yellowtail and worked in the lab with them and a little bit in the vineyards with them. Um, making wine there, just kind of day to day wine making during their harvest, which mm-hmm. their, their harvest goes for a very long time because we made a lot of cases for them. And so, yeah, we, we, you know, more went out there for an experience, mm-hmm. and then fell in love with it. And it was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, where could I go from here? And um, applied for another harvest job, same year but uh, different hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So worked two harvests in the same hemisphere. You know, or the same year, um, but different, different, hemisphere. Di- different, different hemisphere. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, it went to Klein Cellars in Sonoma and started making more Rhone wines there and Zinfandels. And, um, yeah, from there just kind of was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Went on and went to Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, made uh, some Napa Cab, a lot of Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just kind of fell in love with, with that process and with, uh, you know, just the day, day in and day out. It's, you know, something that's, it changes every year. I guess I like that with golf. It's like, you know, you show up one day, it's different. <laughs> different. <laughs> it's a whole day. different game. Yeah. And, uh, and wine's very like that. And year to year, vintage to vintage. Uh, um, and, you know, techniques are always changing. Palettes are changing. Mm-hmm. Customers are always uh, evolving what they like too. So it, it's, it's um, you know, an ever-changing uh, uh industry so it's fun to keep up it's interesting like because to me i i was not really brought up in the wine culture and at mississippi state university we had wine appreciation so i took it i'm not gonna joke around i took it for the free buzz it was just part of this education piece that i could take it was an elective i heard that it was an awesome class and it didn't even take but 45 minutes into the first class for me to realize that this was not a free buzz this was going to be the coolest class that I took at school. And I fell in love with understanding the consumer end of it, which is the drinking it, pairing it with foods, and then what wine does to an environment with friends and colleagues and what have you. That's so, that's what blew me away. I was, it was that, that combination of three of my best friends in college took it with me with a bunch of other like-minded people and we both, everybody was there. We're all 21. So we're all thinking the same thing. And in about 45 minutes, 18, 21 and 22 year old people were like, this is going to be the coolest class ever. So I've not ever thought of the, the process outside of the consumer end. What was the piece that blew your mind the most outside of enjoying wine when you got behind the curtain, so to speak? in the winemaking process that hooked you, but was different than what you thought it might've been like. I guess to me, I guess the one thing that hooked me, um, uh, was, I guess the process of, of blending. Mm-hmm. And so when you're watching a wine, you know, you start with, with, uh, the fermentation process and you start with like this juice. that's like, you know, uh, 
flavor, you know, packet full of like Starburst. And, you, mm. and then you see that evolve <clears throat> once you put it into uh, barrels. But uh, that when you bring it all together and watch each component to come together, it's just it's just like wow, this is is really really cool. Like you're you're creating, you know, you know, almost like you know you're you're cooking some some sort of recipe or something. But you know, you're creating a, a, something of your own, and it's it's distinct to that year, to that specific site, to to you know that vineyard and that location. And it, it, it's uh, it's so unique to me that that was I was just was was hooked I guess from from that on. So. Wow, that's that's really awesome because I've always wondered: does the blending process occur after the barreling of each individual grape, or do you do you do you blend it first then put it into the barrel? Um, so most times you have different vineyard lots, and so you what you do is you you kind of separate those lots ferment them, put them into their own barrels, maybe even specific barrels just for those lots from different forests in mm. in France. Um, and then from there, you, you end up doing your final blend at the end is typically what most wineries do. Got it. Um, and so that process and just like, I remember one day standing at the, on the top of a tank in Stag's Leap and, you know, they had made the blend of cast 23, which is like their higher end wine. Mm-hmm. And just standing there and just hour after hour, you know, we're pumping in different barrels to different lots and just smelling the aromas just change. And it, it just was like a symphony of of all these different smells and flavors. And I think that was one of the days that, you know, that I specifically remember that was like, wow, this is, I could do this for, for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's amazing. So like, yeah. I have an affinity for Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, one, because while studying wine in america at mississippi state stag's leap wine cellars is so famous for winning the the big taste in in paris yeah, the 1976 the, tasting yeah judgment in paris the yeah. judgment in paris and so on my honeymoon we went to stag's leap wine cellars and did their special their special tour and they just took bella and i to throughout the vineyard and into the the brand new caves that 99 was the brand new caves so they got a chance yeah, to yeah, go yeah. down and deal with that and that was so fascinating um, to me because I was like, that opened my eyes to like how big the machine is because it's so big. Like the the like so they create so many cases of wine, and they talked about how they they do different presses, which I found very fascinating. Speaking specifically on Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and how there's the SLV and the Fay Vineyard, and how the best of those two go into Cast Twenty Three. What is the selection process? like to delineate the 10 out of 10 grapes versus the 9 out of 10 that might go only into the Fay and the SLV and then the 8 out of 10 that goes to the Artemis? How does that work? Uh, I mean, back when I was working there, you almost knew, like, um, the winemakers knew, like, what blocks and actually what vineyard rows. Oh, wow. I mean, it because it, they've been doing it for so long, mm-hmm. they, they could be like, all right, typically these four rows from SLV and these five rows – you know, in, in the different blocks are going to go into Fay, And it was kind of, it was pretty cool because they would hide it from us a little bit, like the winemakers, hmm. so that we treated everything really, really well. Ah, uh, nice. And uh, so you, some days you didn't know if you're working on SLV or if you're working on Artemis or Faye, mm-hmm. uh, which I kind of liked, you know, because so it, it made us always very sharp and on top of. Yeah, it kept you uh, honest, so to speak. Yep, you, yep. you didn't favor one thing from another. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. And so, um, 
yeah, I mean, the, you know, that selection process happens, you know, very early on in the vineyard, and um, you know, they're they're constantly watching over those those you know several rows to make sure that you know everything's going well. So yeah. Well, I've I've spent a lot of time uh, doing events with wine, whether it be being part of a panel or just kind of being the opening talk before everybody kind of delves in. And two things kind of like pop up as questions that I hear a lot, which were, what makes Napa Valley such a great place to grow Cabernet Sauvignon versus say Carneros. Why would it be so much better in one area than another? Why, why is that the case? Yeah, it's mostly to do with the, the soils, temperature, um, just the whole climate, the micro and mesoclimates. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, just, just varies on, on that. So, whereas in the Carneros, you have, um, the San Pablo Bay, which that fog and that San Francisco Bay really plays into effect where it reaches into that uh, Carneros region, cools down the Chardonnay and uh, Pinot Noir, which are a lot thinner skin of grapes, whereas the Cabernet needs a little bit more heat. Mm. You know, it likes a, a little more sunlight, and so it's a little bit, you know, thicker skin grapes. And uh, and the soils in, in Napa, you know, you have a lot of really good soils. Like, you know, for example, the Duck Corn Three Palms mm-hmm. is, is a famous vineyard. You have, you know, this, this alluvial fan from two really cool blue line streams, Blue line meaning like uh, used to have salmon in them back in the you know, oh, long, okay. long time ago. So, you know, blue line streams that that would feed in, and then all, that alluvial fan, which is just all types of minerals and and um, rocks that that, that um, deposited across this this um, this bed of, of soil. So, so you get a lot of uh, characteristics in the soils, the climate. Um, but uh, I'd say that's the big difference is, hmm. is uh, those grapes, you know, cab versus pinot. Can, can handle certain weather and temperatures better than others. Got it. Yeah. And the other question that I hear a lot is in the blending process, everybody knows about the Bordeaux blends and how famous they are. But we're starting to see more unique blends with a little bit of maybe Syrah and some Pinot, just a little bit to add something to it. Or... You know, my favorite singer who also does uh, his own vineyard, which is Maynard Keenan out in in Arizona, and he talked about blending 8% Viognier into a Syrah and how that made a huge difference. Were there any type of, in the blending processes of your, in your lifetime, where you put in a white wine with a red wine or something of the like that you never would have guessed would totally blow the wine up into something special? A little bit, you know, and I'll show you, we played it around with that, uh, down in Barossa Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people had some Viognier to their Shiraz, um, which is, you know, it kind of originates more back to Cote Roti, you know, back to Northern Rhone, mm-hmm. which they've actually been doing that for a long time. And so, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, at Klein, we did a little bit of that, um, but nothing crazy. I mean, you know, some of these guys are doing a lot of different stuff nowadays. Yeah. It's hard to follow. There's, you know, all these um, natural wines now, and, you know, you're having uh, orange wines. And uh, so there's a lot of different types of, oh, yeah. uh, of um, you know, uh, winemaking right, mm-hmm. that's happening right now. And so, uh, but for me personally, uh, you know, it was more traditional route. I uh, didn't really do a lot of, you know, crazy blending, I Got guess it. you'd say. So, yeah, yeah. So 
talk to me about Miracle One and that that project and where the name came from because to me when I think of Miracle One I'm thinking of a hole in one but I don't know if that's where what where it comes from or not but it was my introduction to your style of wine and it was it was so cool to have like a personal touch to something that I love so I did like I didn't even know that you were doing it and then like you told me about it and I was like immediately wanted to drink your representation of something that you love and that I love. Talk me about Miracle One. Yeah, so Miracle One started uh, with my good friend Lane Shackleton. Uh, he went to Swanee with me as, um, in college. And then uh, we started, basically, we created this brand called Cannonball. It was kind of a fun uh, brand uh, right when I was working at Klein. We, we uh, sold a little bit, sold the uh, trademark for that to another winery. That wine's still out. And then really wanted to make a wine that we loved and enjoyed. And so I uh, worked with a company called X Winery to get some contracts for grapes in the Carneros. So Truchard and San Giacomo uh, vineyards. And um, just always wanted to, you know, always wanted to make something of my own. Like yeah. you said, show what uh, what I enjoy, what, what, what style I like. And so we started that process, I guess that was like 2006 or five. Mm-hmm. And, um, got into, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, you pick the grapes and, uh, uh, I guess it, it really originated when I was at Stag's Leaf Wine Cellars. We made this small little batch of Pinot Noir, um, for, that was going to be kind of for the staff, but we actually made it too good. And so the, <laughs> <laughs> so they took it and used it in the tasting room. Oh, wow. And, uh, it was just randomly, we got like, it was only like six barrels, but it turned out awesome. I was like, I like Pinot Noir. Mm. This is really fun to make. Um, I know I can enjoy this all the time and, you know, share it with people. And so the name Miracle One actually came about too at Stag's Leap. When you're doing these filtration processes, you, um, you prime some of the filters with water. And so, and then you open the valve of a tank. And once you open the valve of that tank, it pushes the water through, right? And so you're pushing the water through the filter. So there's no uh, oxygen, you know, there's no, uh, the wine's not getting beat up. It's a very smooth transition mm-hmm. through this filter. And so when, when you're going through, when it's, you know, starting the process, water spilling out onto the, uh, the floor, and all of a sudden it slowly starts to turn pink. Then it turns a little bit darker and darker and darker, and then you're tasting it that whole time, uh, you know, with your hand, and you can feel that like uh, the water slowly going away. It's coming more and more wine, and then once it's like 100 percent wine, shut off the valve, and you start your filtration process into another tank. Oh wow! And so it looks like to, to uh, guests walking around the winery that you're kind of turning water into wine. Oh wow! And uh, so you know, being from the south. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, going to church and mm-hmm. Catholic, Catholic uh, miracle one, Jesus first miracle, turning water into wine. Wow. That is phenomenal. That's kind of where, uh, we got the names. So. Ah, that is cool. I did not know that. That <laughs> is a great story. Yeah. So Pinot Noir became super famous after sideways, the movie, <laughs> because until then it was, uh, uh, it was so in my, what the world that I lived in seemed to be so dominated around Bordeaux, Bordeaux style blends and Napa Valley Cabernets. But that movie highlighted Pinot Noir. So I had had a couple, but nothing spectacular. So because I was interested to find out what they made such a big deal about, I also fell in love with Pinot Noir. And what makes it so interesting to me is that the same grape, 
grown in Willamette Valley, Carneros, Burgundy, New Zealand, among other places, are so different yet so fantastic. So I, mean, I just love all of those Pinot Noirs. I love New Zealand Pinots. How is it possible that they could be so different being basically the same thing? Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's why I like golf and wine so much. I mean, it's just you're always discovering something. Mm-hmm. It's always changing. Um, and you can continue to learn and get better. And so, like Pinot Noir, I feel like I'm still discovering. And so why is that? You know, it's just those climates. That, you know, we talked about earlier, the climates, the soils, um, you know, are so distinct and so unique that they play that much of a role in these these grapes because some of them can be the same exact clones yeah you know same exact clone in willamette that you're using say in in burgundy and i mean they're night and day you know i mean yes they kind of have similar styles mm-hmm. but you know at the end of the day uh they're very you know very distinct and and unique would you say so, that the winemaking process of a paramino in burgundy is any is so radically different than Domaine Serene, and that's why it tastes so different? Or is it actually the climate and the soil that's making the biggest difference in the wine? I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, maybe they're, you know, they might be using, you know, having different yeast strains or different native yeasts mm-hmm. that are in Burgundy, um, you know, that's used in the winemaking process. I'm pretty sure Domaine Serene is using a lot of similar barrels. Um, you know, burgundy style barrels, uh, French oak. And so, you know, maybe, you know, there, there are some factors in, but predominantly, you know, the, you can't beat that, that soil in, in burgundy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal, um, geological phenomenon kind of, if you would yeah. say with how it's shaped and, and, uh, the different layers and levels of types of soil that are just right there in those locations. So. That to me, like awesome Burgundy is so fascinating because it's, it is so complex while being outrageously delicate versus a Bordeaux or a Bordeaux style blend, which is so powerful. Like it's just so vastly different while being endlessly complex in its subtle way. And that to me is what separates Burgundy from Every other wine region, to me, is how it evolves in the glass. And then you don't like you buy a case and you open up one at year eight, and you open up one at year twelve, and you open up one at year fifteen, and they're so radically different in the bottle after that amount of time that you can't believe they're the same wine. And that is, that's the art and the beauty of it, I guess, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. And that's and even you can even talk about. Like uh, recently, I had an, an old Bordeaux from the '80s, and even like you pour that first little bit and just watch it evolve. And so, I mean, you can even watch, you know, see wines evolve just over like a course of like a couple of hours. Yeah, and it's uh, it's fun too. It's you know, it's like a book. Like you're you start with the first chapter of it, and you're like, all right, let's see what it does in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you start to pick up you know, different, you know, things on the nose, like rose petal, or you pick up different earth tones. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's what makes, you know, wine so interesting, I feel yeah. like, too. It's so fascinating. I love that. You know, I, I love, like, tobacco. Like, the almost like you spun a cigar on your tongue. I get that a lot from 
certain areas of Poyak. Yeah. Uh, that's I'm like, I just remember the, one of the first Duhart Malone's I had. I was like, man, I just feel like I just spung a Monte Cristo across my <laughs> tongue for like 10 minutes. That is so amazing. When you, uh, when you think back to him, you've had an unbelievable uh, opportunity to taste some of the greatest wines in the world. Give me one or two wines that totally rocked your world, that really like stoned you into, this is going to be my life and passion. I guess the one wine that when I remember young drinking, that I was, I was 22 and wasn't making a lot of money, and my buddy Lane and I went down to this uh, uh, store, and it was Joseph Phelps Insignia in 97. It was either Ooh. 97 or 01. And um, I was like, Lane, we, let's just buy it. We got to buy it. Let's try it out. And we like split it. And then, and this was, you know, 22, just really still figuring things out yeah. with, with our wine palette. And I remember, yeah, us together just sitting there and, and just drinking it and just blowing us away. Uh-huh. And then as I got gotten older, I feel like, um, yes, yeah, some different burgundies. Um, and, and I feel like champagne too. I feel like don't, interesting. don't drink enough champagne. I wish we drank champagne more in the U S I feel like hmm. not just special occasions, but, um, yeah, some, uh, you know, vintage Krug that, you know, older vintage Krug that I've had recently has been pretty impressive. Interesting. And, and that, that again, it's wine. You're just always like your palate changing. You're always learning mm-hmm. and, and evolving in, and, 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 uh, the other one would be, um, yeah, we talked about Burgundy. So I had uh, like Armand Rousseau, Clobez. So um, just like a mm-hmm. Grand, Grand Cru Burgundy. Yeah. Um, just unreal. Just, uh, yeah. Huh. You could, hard to describe just how, like you said, elegant, but also just, you know, you could just go on and on and just, you know, makes you want to just continue to to watch it change and evolve in that glass. It's like a symphony. It just keeps building. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. And like every nose has something else in it. Yep. It just keeps evolving. That's so cool. And then it makes you want to kind of age stuff too and and and, and how, you know, see where, hey, what is it going to be like in five years? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when is it in its prime? So it, it's, uh, yeah. it's it's fun. Yeah. It, I remember the first time I had Insignia. Insignia is like the velvet glove with over top the steel fist. Yeah. Because it's so soft on your palate. Like how they do that for something that's so powerful is so special. I mean, Joseph Phelps Insignia is such a fantastic wine. I mean, it, it doesn't get awards for just because of whatever. I mean, they deliver almost every single year, no matter how, what the quality of the, the growing season was. I can see how you'd be swayed by Joseph Phelps Insignia because that is so fantastic. When you uh, when you think about what wine brings to culture, because you've been to Australia, you've probably been all around the world seeing it. Wine in America is pretty new as it's how it entertains its, itself, so to speak. But in France, Italy, possibly even in, in Barossa Valley in Australia, it's a major part of the the life. What was one of the coolest experiences that you've seen or that you've been a part of where wine was that played a role in the total enjoyment of every single person there. And it was kind of, it was like the key ingredient that turned that into a, a beautiful moment. I'd say there's, there's several. I mean, I, I, to me, I'm just always around yeah. wine. And so it's just, you know, you're constantly 
in different environments. So, you know, from, yeah, being in Australia with a group of, of, um, foreigners from all around the world that came to work harvest mm-hmm. that went through this program. And I remember just having an amazing night enjoying wine with them. And, and it brought us all together. Just, you know, some of us didn't even, you know, didn't speak English well and others did. And, um, watching, you know, people my age, you know, in like early twenties at the time, bring people from all over the world into like, you know, we were like this group and, um, and then, you know, from going into, you know, now, you know, where you have a group of friends over and, um, just that simple, like, you know, we're going to cook a nice meal, relax, you know, talk about life, enjoy yeah. life, slow down and, uh, say, Hey, what, what, you know, what's in our glass? How does this pair? You know, what, um, yeah, I guess that kind of slower pace of just, you know, lay back and, and enjoying it. And I think that's where I, I love wine is one of the, you know, main things. It's just, it brings people to where you're, you know, you're at a different level and you're just sitting there and having great conversation, great fellowship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's one of my favorite aspects of it. And one of the things that wine brings to the table is that it brings two more senses into play. When you know when you're with your friends and with a group of people, you, you're listening and you're looking at, and you're and you're communicating through your eyes and through your mouth and through your ears. But now you bring your nose and your 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 palate into it, and what engages the brain is now all the senses are engaged simultaneously, and it kind of throws you into a place of communal en- enjoyment where it's so everything's plugged in not just half of you's plugged in. And that to me is what I've always noticed. Even if like we get together with a bunch of people and it starts at one o'clock in the afternoon and we're watching the masters and we're not drinking at one o'clock in the afternoon, and but we're actively engaged in Tiger Woods winning the grand, you know, the Tiger slam or is Rory going to complete the grand slam or what have you. But then about four thirty or five o'clock you, you crack open uh, a bottle of something special and all of a sudden the environment changes because more senses are now involved in the situation. And that then, once again, it, it reduces the stress levels, even though you don't, you're not even really stressed because more things are opening up inside of you. And that allows such a great moment to occur. And that, then the beauty of life happens, which is because we have no idea where it's going to go. We give up control. And we surrender to the moment, and that allows us to totally blow up into this awesome thing that we never forget. And that's that's what life is, and that's part of what I wanted to share on a, on a on a podcast. Is that man? You know, you got little kids. You know, you got your your you got your business that your parents own that you're involved in. You got your own family, your own vision of where you want to go. And it's full steam ahead. We're in the far left lane doing doing eighty five. Sometimes yeah, yeah, it even yeah, feels yeah. like the, the the flashers are on, just trying to make our way through the traffic to be able to slow down and and enjoy it. Because there's so much to enjoy. We're so fortunate in so many ways to sit back and enjoy what we have instead of just trying to keep building. If we only build and we don't ever like sit back and enjoy it, yeah, definitely, it's yeah. a loss. Yeah. You know. When you uh, you think about the process of wine and then the process of golf, and you've 
And I started working with you, I think you were 15 years old. And I just remember this long, languid swing. And you had this ability to not get overly emotionally involved in under, you know, having a, a day that wasn't what you wanted it to be. It didn't bother you like it bothered some of your teammates. Some of your teammates were unbelievably talented. And, but the slightest error sent them into a frenzy, whereas you remained even keel. And understanding like that even keelness and the process of becoming a, a very good golfer, which you are, and in the wine, how did each one of these things help you enjoy the other when it comes to golf and wine? Because you have a very great gift of patience and calm and forgiveness about you when it comes to what it is that you, which you put a lot of energy into something, but you, you're so comfortable with Ryan Donnelly that if it's 71 today or 86 today, you are not your score. You're Ryan Donnelly, and today was a great day. I made five birdies. Or I am Ryan Donnelly, and today, well, I putted like a goat. Yeah. You know, how do they how do they intertwine for you with your how you think about your golf and your wine? Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love um, just being out there. Sometimes, you know, we talk about like the enjoyment of, of wine, just being with friends, mm-hmm. and it's very similar. Like, you know, I, I like walking the course. I like just getting lost and not even remembering. Like, oh man, did I make double there? Or did I yeah. make birdie? I just uh, love just kind of getting lost in that moment and being uh, out there. You know, we talk about you know getting lessons too. I love that you know you're thinking about things and it's just a total escape. Mm-hmm. And and same with wine, where it and I've, I've traveled, I've been lucky to, to travel different places, and I love how that smell can just bring me back mm-hmm. somewhere, and uh, and I can really get lost in in that glass of like. Wow, I just you know so many great memories of being here or being there, yeah, or man, you know, like this uh like i I haven't been to Burgundy yet, and so I'm like, you know I want to pick up that soil, like what does it feel like? what does it smell like just in your hands like i I want to go you know what is their climate like on a you know couple weekly basis so mm-hmm. so I think golf and wine you know i, I it's and that patience i guess is just. I don't know, just, just enjoy life and, mm-hmm. and just, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I want to play my best all the time, Sure, but, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm getting to play golf. Uh, it's, it's, it's a game I love yeah. and, uh, and, and that, that escape part of it where you're just kind of lost and just enjoying it. It's just mm-hmm. a great, great break of, of life. So well, you, uh, you've had the opportunity to be a member at a golf course that has provided me with the the greatest round as in like how I played, which is Olympic club in San Francisco. Um, I was out there the week of the LPGA tour event that's played at Lake Merced, uh, working with a a girl on the LPGA tour. And we, on the pro-am day, she wasn't ranked high enough to be in the pro-am field. So we couldn't actually be there. So we went to Olympic and I played from the U S open tees and it was a cool brisk, like 57 
beautifully sunny, wind blown like 10 to 15 miles per hour. And Olympic had a very unique smell. Like you could, like the trees were flowering. So it was like, it was a totally, once again, all the senses were involved. And I hadn't played much golf going in. So I just wanted to experience. So I had no expectations. Didn't have a real care in the world. And I'm out there with an LPGA tour player and she's also struggling. And we both had this idea of we're going to walk slow. We're going to talk slow. We're going to feel like we're in slow motion and just kind of enjoy, make this four hour round feel like a nine hour round. And I just like hit an okay tee shot on one. And then I hit an okay two iron onto the front of the green. Oops, I make eagle. And like it got off. You know, you, you get off on that good. And I just stayed in that place all day. And Olympic Club is fantastically magnificent in its splendor and its beauty, but also brutally difficult with its reverse cants and the slopes. And you, much like Augusta National, there are no there are no flat lies, yeah. except maybe on ten or nine. The dog leg right around the corner as you head to the uh, the hot dog burger yep. stand. Uh, how much does Olympic Club hang into your soul? Yeah, pretty deep. I mean, I I, I love that place. I, I was lucky enough to be there a couple of weeks ago, and you know, you talk about that smell and that that you know salt salty air and that crisp like fog that kind of hits across your face, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's just you know, and, and just the history. You know, I love that that history of behind you mm-hmm. know what has happened there. You know, just you know imagining other players there and hitting shots, but. Uh, but like you said, like I love rounds like that where you can just get lost in the round, just being out there in that moment. Um, I, we, I played Cal Club recently for the first time, and I remember um, walking down, I guess we were walking down 16 Fairway, and I went to my buddy, he's like, what hole are we on? It's like, 16. I was like, no, dang it. <laughs> I, I, and I was like, how did that happen? Are you sure? And you know, I, I was like, I didn't didn't want it to be over, and mm-hmm. it went by too fast. And uh, and that's those are the the best days where you're like, just yeah. So like, just want to slow down. Golf doesn't allow many of the uh, in the things that allow us to go into flow state. And because there are a couple, though, the environment is one. And then when you're in that 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 majestic place. And the environments that put you into a time warp when no, when you no longer live in actual time, when time is bizarrely happening so slow and so fast, that moment that you had on 16, where the day was seemingly going so slow and simultaneously gone like a poof. Yeah. And that was, uh, that's an interesting revelation to experience because when you're, yeah, I call it looking up in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Like you're just driving along and you're like, man, this is such a great day. And somebody says, what hole are we on? You're like, you're like looking up in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And you you pull out of it and you're like, oh, man, it's almost over. And it's normal because we can't stay in that place forever. But it's funny how the first 16 holes felt like nine hours and nine minutes simultaneously. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. And, that, and golf, too, like. I have this memory that I don't have with other things except golf and wine where 
I can recall like certain wines and how they smell and remember them. Mm-hmm. And I can remember like shots I hit and go off. And I, I don't know. I wonder why that is or why that, that like you said, that flow state sure. or what that state yeah. is. Um, and then you talked about too, like Olympic just being, I don't know, too, like am I glutton for punishment? You know, like, <laughs> like I like the honors as well. Like in yeah. Tennessee and, um, you know, I get bored, I guess, if I'm not, just you know, you're sure. constantly challenged. So, what's your favorite golf course you've ever played? Um, I guess you know, I, I, probably Pebble Beach. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, I guess it, again, it goes back. To, it was like a a perfect day out there mm-hmm. that I, I was with some family and a good friend, and you know, it was just the right combination. The weather was gorgeous. And you just have all that, those days that are, or, sorry, you have all those memories of that course from mm-hmm. playing as a kid on, on video games, sure. or, uh, watching U.S. Opens. Um, I, yeah, it's, I still go back to, to Pebble. It's, it's, and like a, to me, the eighth hole is such a beast. I think it's the best hole in the world, the eighth hole. Yeah. And you hit this, I can't, I think I hit like a two iron off the tee the only time I played there, yeah. right in front of the, right in front of the cliff. And you look down at that Ooh. green, and it looks like the size of a grape. It's so small, and you're like... And that cliff is steep. Yes, it is. And I'm like, how in the world do you hit this green? It looks like I can I can put my thumb up in front of my eyes, and it disappears. It's so small. Yeah. And then I hit an unbelievable shot there to like 10 feet, and it's one of the most... It's the most one of the most memorable shots on, in my opinion, the most magnificent hole in the world. It's not my favorite golf course in the world, but it is the my favorite hole in the world. I love that place. Um, that's so cool. What, uh, next question is favorite band, favorite concert. What was, what's your, uh, in the, in the music world, what's your favorite, what's your favorite kind of music, favorite band and concert? Uh, Pearl Jam? No. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I remember as a kid, you making us listen to that all the time. <laughs> I would say, man, that is tough. I mean, it's hard to beat, um, uh, the Ryman. Uh, there's been so many great concerts yeah. that I've been to there. Um, I guess though, I'm going to go back to like high school yeah. being a kid and, uh, going to hear Steve Miller band. Oh, wow. It was like my second concert at Starwood here. And, uh, I don't know. I just loved it. They, they just were, um, you know, they were still playing, playing pretty, Pretty well back. I guess that was maybe nineties. Yeah, and uh, Steve Miller. Yeah, I just I don't know. I just remember that concert so well, and it was such a cool experience. Yeah. And you know, this is you know, you're I'm still in high school, so yeah, like you know, just becoming like uh, you know, getting into music, but like being wow, that's what it's all about. That is so true because like that the well, like the first couple of concerts make such a huge impact on you because they're yeah, yeah it's a sign that you're getting a little bit of freedom. Yep. You know, and, uh, you know, so like I'm trying to get, I expose my kids to rock and roll because rock is like my, my, my engine. And so I was, um, the Joker, uh, you know, Steve Miller. I'm just like, (laughs) I I listened to it the other day. I'm like, wow, I haven't thought about Steve Miller band in forever. So my kids listen and they're like, what's this dad? It sounds old. I'm like, well, it's kind of old, but They got into it, but it's so music is so interesting. Like my my, my biggest one that I can recall uh, that that made an impact to me similar to what yours was is when Guns N' Roses became 
when they were the biggest band in the world and they had come off this long hiatus without putting anything out and they came out with Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. They had a concert in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and they had another one of my favorite bands, Skid Row, open up for them. And it was so unbelievable. And I was, I'd seen like the Black Crows in a small environment in 1990, but that was 1991. And it was so big. And guns were so big. And like Axel was like, who he was, was who I was as a teenager. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so I mean, I know, amazing. I know that, that I know that feeling. It's so, it's so cool to have that that young memory. And I've been so fortunate to see so many awesome shows. But just off of what you you said there, that kind of threw me back to like that was my first metal show. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would consider Guns and Roses metal, but at the time there was not like there was that much ferocity in music like there later became to be so like they were considered the ultimate rebel band mm-hmm. and my mom was all you're gonna be over there with all these <laughs> crazy people and i'm like so i had no idea what to expect and it just turned out to be another rock concert but yeah. it was funny that's so cool yeah because i mean even you know i don't know the, those early memories like i remember just even driving in the car to the concert oh yeah and like waiting in line and just i don't know the whole anticipation and, mm-hmm. and build up and uh it, it was awesome what's your favorite movie Favorite movie? Um, what is, uh, probably uh, A River Runs Through It. I don't know if you've seen that in huh. a long time. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. It's just so, I don't know. I've always, I like the stories in that movie and then just that peacefulness of fly fishing and like, I don't know, I've, I've fly fished a little bit mm-hmm. before, but uh, would like to, to learn more. Hmm. Interesting, and I, I guess I can see how that that's a very like, I don't know, relaxing, mm-hmm. cool experience, kind of like off. Sure, yeah. So you're at the beginning of what is considered the prime of your life, and it's good to know you're an example, <laughs> which is why I wanted you to to be here. You're an example of somebody who has chased their passions to create a life. And part of what my my show is about is just that. To conclude our our show, what are the the lessons that you've learned through your first 40 years that you'd like to pass on to anybody out there who's you know either young or struggling to find that place? What are some of your keys to being successful and living the happy life that you live? Uh, I think the big one, just staying patient. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be fast. And, uh, just never losing that, that passion. Like, you know, keep feeding off other people, younger people, or, you know, even older people that are just excited about that. Like I work with a guy now that's 67, man, he flies. Like, like I love cute, just kind of keep up with him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and just, you know, try to keep learning and, taking classes like i'm taking some more wine classes right now and uh I, I like that you know just continue to challenge your mind and um uh, but yeah the big one i would say just stay patient and and uh just keep working hard i mean it's you know it doesn't come easy no keep grinding away doing do the little things you know um the little things are the big things yeah that's uh, that's uh, so interesting 
Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your schedule to uh, come on The Verge and discuss your life and, and your passions. It's been uh, great to have you thank on. You. And uh, thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate that. Callaway isn't just pushing the boundaries of driver technology. They're pushing ball speed further than humanly possible. The new Epic Flash driver with Flash Face technology features Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. By harnessing this power, Callaway was able to create, test, and refine over 15,000 different faces to find the absolute fastest one. The way speed is created has been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI.